1: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olly Neaton. 75 years after its publication, Gone with the Wind remains one of the most beloved novels in the world. And yet, like any good Southern belle, it's kept some secrets over the years. The new book, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, a bestseller's odyssey from Atlanta to Hollywood, written by Ellen Brown and John Wiley Jr., is set to change that, however. It's an unusual thing, a biography of a book. And yet what we learn here is that the life of Gone with the Wind as a publishing phenomenon almost rivals the drama found in the novel itself. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Ellen Brown about Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, a bestseller's odyssey from Atlanta to Hollywood. Hi, Ellen. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself to start off.
0: Well, I'm a freelance lawyer. I live in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, I practiced law for about 10 years and then turned to writing about five or six years ago and have been doing magazine work for several years. And this was my first book.
1: This is a bit of an unconventional biography in that it's a biography of a book rather than a person. So what drew you to the story of Gone with the Wind as a book? And how did you settle upon telling it in this way rather than focusing on the story of, of Margaret Mitchell, for instance, or John Marsh?
0: Well, it it was an interesting way it all came about. Um, As I mentioned, I'm I'm a former lawyer and a freelance writer. So I was assigned to write a story, a profile of John Wiley Jr., who has the world's largest collection of Gone with the Wind memorabilia. And while we were doing that interview, uh, I'll admit I was not a Gone with the Wind person. I I didn't know much about it until I met John. Um, But I was so intrigued by the stories he was telling me about Margaret Mitchell's experiences in dealing with her literary rights and then also what her family went through after her death dealing with the literary rights. And so I said to him after we finished our interview, I said, well, where's the book on that? I want to read that story. That was really fascinating. And I was amazed when he told me that nobody had ever written the story of Gone with the Wind from the perspective of these literary rights, which have had a very fascinating life certainly during Margaret Mitchell's lifetime, but extending beyond her lifetime. And so that's kind of why I kind of came up with the idea of a book about the book, as opposed to just a book about Margaret Mitchell, because she's been dead 60 years, and the book has been through many adventures since she's been gone, And um, the other thing that brought me to it was my legal background, uh, very much a legal story of her various contract negotiations. She had to negotiate contracts with Macmillan, her publisher, David Selznick, the movie producer, and then countless other contracts with foreign publishers people wanting to produce products based on Gone With the Wind. And so it was a real melding of those two things, my legal background, and then also this just this fascination with Margaret Mitchell's experiences.
1: It's It's really an incredibly readable book. It's not that technical. And it's just it's very fascinating story about what happened with the book itself. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, So what was your research process for this?
0: That was, uh, it was a really detailed process. When I first started, I was aware that Margaret Mitchell's papers were at the University of Georgia, uh, Hargret Rare Book Library, and I certainly figured that was where the bulk of the research was going to be, um, but it turned out there were many, many other sources, uh, but the primary one was Hargret, but then the New York Public Library also has uh, an amazing archive of Macmillan's papers relating to the publication of Gone with the Wind, and uh, one of the letters in that archive includes one from one of the associate editors saying, hey, um, our document retention policy calls for us to destroy these Gone with the Wind papers now. It's been seven years, I think it was, Uh, but I think we ought to save them. Let's go ahead and keep these rather than trashing them, and what a great, great person. (laughs) who had the foresight to do that because these documents tell an incredibly rich story of what went on behind the scenes in the making of this great book. And uh, so that was a fascinating archive. Um, Also there are smaller archives in various universities around the country that have tidbits of information that were relevant, but also private archives, family members, of the people who were involved in the publication of this book have many, many documents still in private possession. And so that was quite an adventure, tracking all those people down, and in many cases, convincing them to let us see those papers. Uh, In several instances, I think the people were a little nervous that they shouldn't have those documents. Maybe grandpa or grandma swiped a few things from Macmillan over the years, you know, that sort of thing. Um, And so they had never shared these documents with anybody before. But John and I convinced many of them that, you know, really, it's kind of time that this story is told. Uh, I think the statute of limitations has run out on (laughs) any potential custody issues. And uh, so we were able to really uncover some fun, interesting, behind-the-scenes stories that way. How long did it take you to write the book it was We decided to write it i was I think it was in two thousand seven and we finished uh in la- last year uh, We wanted it released last year because it was the seventy uh, fifth anniversary of Gone with the Wind's original publication. Mm-hmm. And so I think this book could have taken us, if I had my druthers, could have taken maybe five years, but instead we really compressed it into a three year time period because we wanted it to be released in time for the anniversary. And it was really three years, almost 24 hours a day, it seemed like it sometimes. Um my the joke I tell at all my talks is my poor children ate nothing but cereal for that entire time period because there was there were literally not enough hours in the day to go through these thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of documents that still exist relating to the history of this book and um and I kept thinking I was going to get to the point where I would say enough was enough with the research you know you need to you need to focus on the writing. But every page I turned had some tidbit in it. So I really felt like I had to go through everything. I couldn't skip anything for fear of missing some great nugget of information. Um, but it was a lot of fun.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think that comes through in the book. It's such a rich story. And the details that you fill in with it really just make the difference.
0: It's, well, that, That's a huge compliment. Yeah. And we tried really hard to make it readable. We wanted it almost to be like a legal thriller, Mm -hmm. if you will, because what Margaret Mitchell experienced and what her family experienced was very dramatic as it was happening. And uh, some of it could be kind of dry because it was contract-based, but if you think about the people and what they were experiencing, it was really fascinating, and um, I really wanted to do that justice. Yeah, and
1: you're helped by having a lot of very lively, colorful characters as well.
0: That That is for sure. I mean, it's hard, I would say it would be hard to write a boring book about Margaret Mitchell. <laughs> exactly.
1: So let's talk <laughs> about was, her
0: a bit. Um, can you sure. describe her for us? Margaret Mitchell was a fascinating woman. I think there are many different perceptions of her out there. There are several straight biographies, so to speak, that deal just with her life. And each one of them presents a certain perspective of her. In one of them, she's presented... As this kind of demure housewife who stumbled into this great success. Uh, in another one, she's credited with being fairly intelligent, but a bit of a neurotic and maybe a hypochondriac. Uh, in another one, she is portrayed as, again, intelligent, but that her husband really was the driving force behind the publication of the book. And the thing I'm most proud of about my book is that I think we present the first sort of comprehensive perspective of who Mitchell was. She was, she was all those things. She was smart. She was a bit of a hypochondriac, but she was incredibly quick witted. She was a terrific storyteller. And the thing I was most impressed by is she's a fighter. I mean, she fought to the ends of the earth, literally to protect her interests in this book. And, I don't know a lot of authors who would have the metal to do what she did. And uh and I really think she's almost a an early feminist. I don't think she viewed herself as that, but I think she could certainly be a role model to many women out there of uh, a lot of times she was sort of patted on the head and told to go away and she never would. She she always stood up for what she thought was right and I, and I think that's great. And she was also a ton of fun. As I was going to mention uh, a minute ago, so many of her letters are just laugh out loud, hysterical. And I wanted to include all of them in our book. And, of course, so many of them had nothing to do with the scope of our book. But, you know, sometimes you just like, oh, that's such a great quote. I can't leave it out. <laughs> so uh, it was just a lot of fun going through all that.
1: I think that's one of the things that often gets overlooked about Gone with the Wind is that she was an incredibly good writer. It's not, it is a great story, but it's also so beautifully well written. Um, and that often is overlooked. It's really unfortunate. But what
0: was her writing process like? Her writing process was uh, an extensive one. It took her about 10 years to write this book. Uh, So you see these writers today, a lot of people who can knock out a book in a year. I I can't even imagine how that's done. And Margaret Mitchell certainly couldn't. Uh, She agonized really over every detail of this book. She rewrote everything. She wrote, rewrote, rewrote again. She was a big believer in putting your thoughts down and then putting your work aside for weeks or even months if you had the luxury of time and coming back to it. And she said oftentimes she would write something that she really liked and thought, I've really hit the nail on the head here. And then she would go back to it a month later and be horrified and say, oh, it's terrible uh, that you had to have distance to allow yourself to edit your own work, which I think is a very valuable lesson for all writers. Uh, She also, her writing process, she wrote very much initially off the top of her head. She told the story from the emotional perspective. She knew she wanted to tell this love story about these two complicated characters and she wanted to tell the emotional side or the practical effects of what it was like for civilians living through the Civil War. It's a very emotional story. And so she got all that out first. Then, once she sold the manuscript, she went, "Oh my gosh! Now I need to go back and make sure every single historical deca- detail is accurate." And she spent months researching every little nuance, thousands of little details to make sure that nobody could catch her uh, and saying, "Oh, you, you know, you slipped up on that, or you didn't, you know, dot all the I's and cross the t's." And uh, for years after the book was published, people would write her letters and say things like, oh, you have somebody using a toothbrush. Well, toothbrushes weren't invented then. And she would zing them back with the exact citation <laughs> <laughs> for what she had used that indicated that at least somebody had a toothbrush back then. Uh, and she, so it was a very drawn out, lengthy process, but the key word was meticulous, both in terms of editing and research and also in terms of style. She wanted a uniform style. She wanted a crisp, clean, fast paced, and she wanted every aspect of the story to, uh, flow accurately. So she had these, you know, ornate chronologies where she kept track of all the births and deaths of all the characters and how the timeline fit together. And, uh, again, a real lesson to any writer today uh, could really follow her model of how to write a novel. I don't know that all of ours would come out as well as hers did, <laughs> but she certainly set some good examples.
1: So how did Gone with the wind get into the hands of a publisher, and what condition was the manuscript in at the time?
0: Well, I think by today's standards, it's a really remarkable story. Mitchell never had gotten around to sending the manuscript to publishers. She 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 later told people she never intended to have it published, and several of the biographies follow that approach and I think that's wrong. I think that's a lie. She was just kind of just saying that so she wouldn't appear vain. I think she intended to have this book published all along. she just yet hadn't gotten around to sending it to publishers because it wasn't finished. Uh, what happened is a she had a friend from, uh, who had used to live in Atlanta but had moved up to New York who was an associate editor at Macmillan. That friend had never seen the manuscript but thought so highly of what a great conversationalist Margaret Mitchell was that she said, if Mitchell can write a story as well as she can tell one, the book is sure to be a humdinger. That's one of my favorite quotes. That woman's son told me that. <laughs> so uh, this woman, Lois Cole, told her editor-in-chief, you know, we need to get this manuscript out of my friend down in Atlanta. And that editor was on a a scouting tour, and he went down to Atlanta, and he talked Mitchell into turning the manuscript over to him. But, as I said, the manuscript was not in any condition to be sent off. You know, so many writers today, we agonize over our manuscripts and want it to be on the right kind of paper, and you want it to look perfectly clean, and you want it just just to be perfect, because it's your baby. Well, hers was anything but perfect. It wasn't finished. It was, she had multiple drafts of chapters. The chapters were not even numbered. They were basically, she had envelopes full of assorted chapters, and she just dumped this enormous pile of envelopes on the editor. And he got his hands on it, and literally his first reaction was, what the heck is this? I can't make heads or tails of it. It was such a disaster, but there was something in it that caught his eye and he never really said what it was, but there was just some spark of something. And so he shipped the entire thing up to New York to the friend, Lois Cole, the associate editor and had Lois Cole put it in chrono, put the chapters in chronological order Sort through the multiple drafts of the same chapters and pick which one was better and put it in a first rough draft form. So based on what Cole put together, they extended a contract to Mitchell, which is really amazing if you think about it, because she's a first-time author, completely unknown other than this friend of hers, and they give her a full contract without even having an actual manuscript and, uh, but they had such confidence in her based, just based on the spirit of the thing and the parts that they did have. They felt moved so quickly and were, like you said, her writing, there was just something magical about her writing, even in draft form. And, uh, so that's how she got her contract. And she was stunned when they proposed it, they proposed to, uh, buy it from her. She thought they were joking. And, uh, and, you know, she was so startled by it that she said, well, how long do I have to finish the darn thing? Because it wasn't complete. She didn't even have a first chapter yet. And they said, take as long as you want, because they knew it was in such a rough shape. They didn't even initially give her a deadline. They just said, we want it, but take as long as you want finishing it.
1: So ultimately, her contract with Macmillan created some headaches. Uh, What were the terms of the contract, and were the Marshes victims in that situation?
0: I think victims is a great word for it. Uh, The terms of the contract were a pretty standard publishing contract. The problem in this case, though, was because the manuscript was not finished when Macmillan purchased it, they didn't have any concept of how huge it was going to be. You know, the book is over 1,000 pages. And for 1935, 1936, that was really unheard of. Uh, That was simply too big to produce a profitable book of that size. Uh, There had only been one other book that large before that was of any merit, Uh, it's called Anthony Adverse. And in order for the publisher to make money on that book, they'd had to sell it for $3 a copy. And at that time, this is in the middle of the depression, that was a ridiculous amount of money for a book. Nobody had that money. And so when Mitchell finally turned the manuscript in, it was far bigger than they had anticipated, and so they tried to renegotiate her contract. And they basically said, Look, we agreed to offer you this certain deal on royalties, but if we stick to that deal, we can't make any money. And we want you to agree to take less royalties. And, you know, she was a first time writer, she was exhausted after the editing process. She was frustrated with Macmillan for a few other reasons, and so she finally just caved. Really, she said, out of respect for her friend Lois Cole, the associate editor who had introduced her to Macmillan. And I think to her dying day, she was always irritated about how Macmillan handled that, and they never really said thank you to her. Uh, they did later adjust the contract partially backed to be in her favor, but then they, when they did that, they acted like they were doing her a big favor. And that really, I, I think she was a victim, she, a victim of her naivete. And as I said earlier, she was a real fighter, and I think that's the situation that turned her into a fighter, that she was so annoyed that she let them kind of push her through that, that she wasn't going to take anybody else's nonsense. And uh, a lot of times later on people would say she was overreacting, and why didn't she ever trust anybody? And I think it was because she got burned very early on in the process. And if that hadn't happened, who knows what Mitchell's demeanor might have been later on. She might have been a much gentler, easygoing person, but I think, you know, once bitten, twice shy. Right. And uh, I think that explains a lot of what happened with her later on.
1: And then in addition to that, Macmillan kind of messed up the publishing of the book as well, right? Which created further legal headaches later on.
0: It, it did. Uh, one fascinating story to me, the lawyer in me loved this part of the book was Macmillan had an obligation as the publisher of the book to, Follow certain procedural steps to make sure that the copyright was protected internationally and MacMillan was in such a rush to get the book out uh, and there's a long backstory to it I don't want to give too much away but Basically, Macmillan didn't do everything it was supposed to do with regard to the international copyright, and Mitchell ended up paying a serious, serious price for that. And it was, it was a tragedy in many ways, but in the long run, she does come out on top in that regard, so I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think it's important to hit upon the sheer impact of reading Gone with the Wind for those early readers. And you do a really great job of just talking about the people who were kind of hit by the force of the story and couldn't put the book down and read it for days on end until they were done. Can you just kind of describe the situ- the sensation that that created as the book kind of swept across America and bookstores? And also, is there a modern equivalent for this?
0: Well, you know, that's... a. a- one of the parts that was very hard to write for the book because there were so many letters in those Macmillan files of people writing in to the publisher just raving, I mean, throwing themselves prostrating. We have never experienced anything like this in a book. Um, They wrote her letters saying it had changed their life. Uh, they, They wanted to see Margaret Mitchell. They wanted to touch Margaret Mitchell, for the first several years after the book came out, she received hundreds of letters a day, many days, sometimes up to 600 letters a day of people writing her these incredibly emotive testimonials about either how her writing had affected them, how her characters had affected them, people saying, you saved my marriage, you made me realize that I had something and was about to lose it. Uh, she had other people saying, you made me realize how terrible my marriage was because I don't have a love like that. So thank you for taking me away from my marriage. Uh, just every human type of reaction, uh, she received these things and it, it was a tremendous pressure on her because people felt so connected with her and appreciated her so much. And it just put a lot of burden on her emotionally that she really didn't have the strength to handle. I don't know that anybody could handle that level of responsibility for other people's lives. And um she really agonized over that, but did make a point of writing to pretty much everybody who wrote to her. If somebody wrote to her to say they loved the book or to thank her for it, she wrote them a letter back, which I think is pretty amazing. Whether there's a book today that equals it, there's a lot of discussion does Harry Potter reach that level? And I think maybe in a certain context it does, but I don't think any other book will have what Gone with the Wind had because it was the first mega bestseller. Harry Potter is huge. It's amazing. But we've all seen bestsellers before. With Mitchell, it was really the first gangbuster mega book in American publishing history. Uh, Mark Twain certainly had some degree of success. Nobody would question that, but that was a different day and age in terms of what publishing could accomplish and how many people it could reach. In the era of mass publication, production of books, nothing like Gone with the Wind had ever happened. And so I think it will always have a unique spot in literary history because it was the first mega, mega book that changed people's lives. And, and she really was the first mega American best-selling author. And so uh, maybe other books will end up selling more than hers, but I don't think they can ever truly take the crown away. Right. That was
1: one of the things that really struck me. It's not that it just was phenomenally successful right out of the gate, but it was phenomenally successful right out of the gate, and then had sustained growth, so that within the first ten years they could release so many different editions. I thought that was fascinating.
0: And well, and that's that's what's one thing that's interesting about Mitchell's family. After she died, you know, her husband thought, "Okay, let's just let this die." It's just going to go away. She died 13 years after the book came out. And the book was still selling, but they sort of figured she's dead now. We'll have a little plug, you know, after the death. But it's, it's going to eventually fade away. But one of the people at Macmillan and then Mitch, and Mitchell's brother said, no, there's still life left in this thing. It's just a matter of handling it correctly. And for years, they're still putting I mean, 75 years later, they're still putting out new Editions of it, mm. and you have, to, and it's all over the world. In China alone, last year there were ten editions of it. Wow, last year, and so you have to wonder: Will Harry Potter be able to sustain that level of interest? Right, and at, you know, t- time will tell.
1: How much do you think the movie
0: plays into that that sustained interest? Well, and that's a beautiful part of it. You have a wonderful book, and you have a wonderful movie. They're very different in many ways, but they're both. Stellar examples of their form, and so certainly that has a role to play, and uh, and nobody would deny that if if the movie didn't exist, that the book could have sustained this level of interest. I, I know I I seriously doubt it could have, but but they yeah they do they work in tandem. The book supports the movie, and the movie supports the book, and what we call it in our description in our book, is it really is a money-making machine at this point. The two just keep feeding on each other. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens when the copyright expires about two decades from now to see if Congress will renew the copyright or whether it will eventually go into the public domain and uh, what would happen then if people would start producing new version, a, new movie, a new movie version of it, maybe? Oh, wow. <laughs> or would people start producing their own sequels? it'll be interesting to see what happens then. Yeah. Um,
1: So another interesting point that came up was the impact of World War II on the novel, both as it related to the publication of the novel in European and Asian countries, as well as the way that people in the warring countries began to interpret the reading of the novel. Can you talk about that a bit?
0: That was one of the things that stunned Margaret Mitchell the most about Gone with the Wind was its reception overseas. People, as much as people love it in America... And I think today people do still love it. There's some controversy over it, but people do generally still care for it. People overseas, I would say, love it twice as much, three times as much. And Mitchell never could understand that because to her, it was a uniquely American story, the American Civil War and what they were fighting about and you know, brother against brother, that whole thing. Certainly other countries had civil wars, but she felt it was a uniquely American Indeed, a uniquely Georgian story. She didn't even think her story translated to people in Virginia. To her, it was a Georgian story. And so that people in these foreign countries loved the book, especially given that it was translated. She was saying, so much of this book is in dialect. How could you even translate that? How could it come across? And I don't think anybody, unless we all spoke all these foreign languages, would have a concept of how true those translations are to the original. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know. We have to assume they're pretty good. But whether they're good or not, whether they get the dialogue down or not, the fact is, people love this story and connect with it no matter what language it's in, because it really... Even though it's a story about war, a civil war, it's also a story of survival that applies to any type of war. And it's also a love story. And of course, that translates to every language. And uh, so throughout World War II, the fascinating thing was uh, there was not a full copyright protection for Mitchell in these foreign countries. And she was fighting like the Dickens to protect her copyright in these foreign countries while World War II was going on, when there was no long-distance telephone communication, it could take months to write a letter to get and to get it across the ocean, if you could even get it across at all. She's fighting lawsuits in foreign countries, and they have, uh, at one time, a, a case was about ready to be heard in The Hague, and the city was bombed, and the law firm's offices were destroyed, and the, all the copies of the documents were destroyed. But she did not let any of that stop her, and she would simply wait until hostilities in a certain area of Europe died down, and then as soon as things, she got word that things had settled in a certain place, she would back, be back to fighting to make sure the copyright was protected and that she was receiving her royalties down to the last penny. She, didn't, she really didn't take any excuses from anybody, um, because... She just felt very much that Gone with the Wind was her baby and it should be her baby in the United States and it should be her baby all over the world. And uh today it's still the book does phenomenally well overseas, especially in Germany, France, Japan, and China. They just love it, even today.
1: So how important is this novel to the development and evolution of US copyright law?
0: Absolutely essential. The the key thing to know about that is that prior to Gone with the Wind, as I mentioned, there had never been a best-selling American author since Mark Twain. Uh, when Mark Twain published his books, if you're familiar with that story at all, he had no copyright protection. The American copyright law was a disaster during his lifetime, and he didn't make nearly the money he should have off of his books. Various time periods after that, Congress considered joining the international copyright conventions in order to protect American authors overseas. But the problem was the international law was very different from American law at the time. And if we were going to join these international copyright conventions, American law would have to change. And that would obviously be expensive and time consuming and just a lot of work. So, Congress looked at this periodically and said, really, why go to all the trouble? Because there is no American author that anybody cares about overseas. There hasn't been anybody since Mark Twain. And that was really the reality that no American author before Margaret Mitchell was selling books overseas to any appreciable degree. And so Congress simply said, we're not going to join the International Copyright Conventions. And so American authors, their works really were up for the taking, there were some things that publishers could do to protect the books to a certain degree. And that was what I was talking about earlier, that Macmillan could have done a few things to help her out with regard to protection of the copyright. But it was so unusual that anybody cared about the copyright internationally that that, that, that's why they sort of let that slip through the cracks in their defense. And Mitchell discovered this that there was no international law protecting her, and she could not believe it. And she basically single-handedly forced these international publishers to respect her copyright, even though they legally were not required to in many instances. And she simply said, I don't care what the law says. You are stealing my book if you don't pay me royalties. Mm -hmm. And many of them said, you know, you're right. And they were willingly signed contracts with her. And what happened is, after she died, Congress saw, number one, what happened to her, because she was constantly writing to Congress and, saying, and the State Department saying, look, you've got to change this law. It's not for me. It's not going to help me out, but for other American authors. And after she died, and it was after World War II, when all of a sudden the world was interested in what Americans had to say, uh, Mitchell's brother went to the Senate and testified about what she went through and the Senate did uh, eventually join the International Copyright Convention. So all American authors today really do have her to thank for the level of protection that we have today.
1: So what's been the history of the book since her death?
0: Pardon? What has been the history
1: of the book since her death?
0: Well, after she died, her brother ultimately inherited the rights, and he had been involved with the book All along, he was a lawyer and had represented her throughout many of these contract negotiations that we mentioned, and he felt justifiably that he had not done necessarily the best job he could do to represent his sister's interests. Like I said, some of the contracts were not especially favorable to her, and he basically went back and did a lot to renegotiate some of those contracts or to improve the deal the estate was getting uh, out of Mitchell's contracts. And uh, he took it, whereas Mitchell took the book, like I said, as her baby and was very protective of it. He took it more as an asset and did what he could to maximize it. And so he was very supportive of publishing paperback editions of the book, something that Mitchell wasn't especially interested in. He was also the one who authorized the two sequels, which, Margaret Mitchell would never have allowed. I uh, have said before, you know, when Stevens Mitchell, the brother, arrived in heaven and Margaret Mitchell was sitting there waiting for him, I can only imagine what she said to him (laughs) about what the heck were you thinking authorizing these sequels. He, He also authorized the production, theatrical productions and musical productions all over the world. And, uh, the book has gone on just to have a remarkable life internationally in terms of theatrical productions and musicals. There's a Japanese all female musical version and, uh, it just lives on. It keeps going. Uh,
1: Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Margaret Mitchell's gone with the wind at bestsellers odyssey from Atlanta to Hollywood. I know it's a dreadful question to ask an author when the books only just come out, but do you have any idea what you're going to be writing next?
0: I'm working on a book now that was actually the book Mitchell was working on when she died. Uh, I found some notes indicating the subject that she was interested in, and so I went and did some digging into that and said, well, I wonder what was so interesting about it that Mitchell was interested in it. And it turned out to be a great topic. It's about a poet from Georgia, true story, uh, who claims that Edgar Allan Poe stole the raisin from him. And so that's hopefully that will be my next book.
1: Oh wow, that sounds great. How exciting.
0: It's really fun. It's another book, extremely research intensive, mm-hmm. just fascinating.
1: Oh cool. I'll look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Ellen Brown about Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, a bestseller's Odyssey from Atlanta to Hollywood, which is now available in Hardback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.